Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, August 14th here down at the Jersey Shore getting a couple weeks away, uh, spending some time in the sun uh, outside the city trying to make the most of coronavirus vacation summer 2020. I uh, hope everyone is doing well. They're staying safe and healthy as you know we continue to battle these really, really difficult times. Uh, coming up today on the podcast is something really interesting, I, I hope, is that I uh, continue my series, talk about seven seconds or less. Uh, at the beginning, then I'm going to talk about the news from college football this week, uh, the really unfortunate and, and sad news about just college football, college sports in general. And then my my younger brother, Michael, is coming back on today. This time, not talking any movies. He's talking NBA basketball. He's graduated to the big leagues on the double-double. And he's talking about uh, his favorite team, the Denver Nuggets, and his favorite team to complain about, the Philadelphia 76ers. So I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that part of the podcast. That will be a little later on. But first, I want to talk about seven seconds or less. As I continue reading it, what's been really, really interesting is these these two concepts of consistency for that year's Phoenix Suns and just the the concept of consistency consistency in general for sports teams and how coaches deal with it and trust. And so starting with consistency, I, I'm dubbing it like the battle of consistency and how coaches deal with inconsistent players and inconsistent effort because there's only so much that coaches can do, right? They can put in the game plan. They can choose who's out there on the court. They can have practices. They can choose what to work on. But a coach on the sideline can't do anything about the actions of the players on the court. They can try to influence it by putting someone else on there, but they can't make a shot go in. They can't uh, will the ball to go in or tell or make someone stop fouling or get a certain whistle or prevent someone else from scoring. And what was really interesting was reading about the Phoenix Suns is that they battled with consistency levels a lot of times with just effort. And I think that happens over an 82 game series, uh, 82 game season. It's such a grind that you have the highs of the wins and you think, oh, we've won four in a row. It's easy. We're awesome. We're great. And then you lose and it's, you get humbled and then you come back uh, the next day and just dealing with inconsistent effort in the postseason, especially was really, really interesting to read about of the Suns would bring it some games and not bring it some other games and reading about how coach Dan Tony uh, would deal with that because so much of being an NBA coach compared to high school or college is the players are so so much more powerful and influential than than you are, and you know for the Suns, the Suns weren't going to trade Steve Nash and keep Mike D'Antoni if something was wrong. They were going to keep Steve Nash and fire Mike D'Antoni, and so it's really interesting to to see you know in in college they players transfer they graduate. Uh, but it's rare, you know, for the school to say, hey, you know, you underperformed this year, so we're going to fire you instead of uh, trying to get better players. Because it's just the, the power dynamic is way, way different in college or high school compared to the pros. And so it's just really to hear about how Mike D'Antoni, like, wants to scream at them. He wants to, like, be like, why don't you guys play consistently hard in the playoffs? We're in the second round of the playoffs. This is a huge, huge game, like, like, why aren't you guys giving it your all or bring it from from the jump? But he can't because he can't lose the the locker room. He can't 
with just this way that the dynamics of an NBA locker room and the player coach relationships are, he can't do that. So it was really to see how he would approach that, how he would phrase things and how he would talk to guys about trying to pump them up and get them ready to go. Uh, but also knowing that, Hey, they didn't really know sometimes what team would show up. And then the other thing that was really interesting, uh, it's just this whole idea of trust. And he, and he uses the Eddie house a lot, which is, you know, trusting Eddie House a lot of times uh, in the games, that's something that he struggled with. There would be matchups where he loved Eddie House because of the way he could shoot and just his creativity on offense. But then also there would be a lot of matchups where Eddie House on defense, he couldn't really trust him or in certain matchups. And it's just interesting because so much of coaching is the what you can't control is the players who you is is the players who are out on the court and trust as as much as you can't influence the game you have to trust them that they're going to do what you want to do and, and what you think will be best to help your team win and it's just that battle of trust of a lot of times it's trusting on the defensive side of the court that they'll know the matchups they'll know the the most importantly the strategy of what they're trying to do hey are we doubling this guy how are we guarding pick and rolls hey this guy's a shooter you know they talk about one guy on the clippers uh radmanovich who their game plan was basically to stick on him don't don't leave him and they had a couple guys who went and helped and left him and they weren't as glued on to him as pop as the game plan was so it drove him nuts because it's like this is the game plan guys like we got to do the game plan if if you're glued on him and he makes shots, we can live with that. But we got to stick with the game plan. It was really interesting to see just that 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 level of trust and how important that was as we get into the playoffs. But I'm loving the book. I'm learning a lot from Coach Dan Tony and just that whole season, uh, not just from the great players like Steve Nash and just his level of preparation and hard work that went into him becoming who he was or uh, Sean Marion, the tremendous player he was, is so underrated. Raja Bell, the way he competes, Leonardo Barbosa, how quick and just how uh, magical he was and fun-loving he was and how the guys loved him on the team. Boris Diaw for just really shows how no matter how good you are or seemingly how perceived not good you are as a player, fit matters so much more than almost any other uh, aspect for someone's career was that those Suns teams were the perfect fit for him and, and his skill set. But if he was on a different team, uh, he was going to get buried, and, and he was buried. And we may never know who Boris Diaw was uh, unless he played on those Suns teams, unless they took a chance on him because his skill set fit what they were trying to do. So a lot of times it's, hey, not just getting the best players, but it's getting the right players. So I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I think everyone should read it if you haven't already. Seven Seconds or Less by Jack McCallum. It's a great, great book. Transitioning here now to the world of college sports. This week was, this past week was a brutal one for college football in particular. It was a long week. So we start the week really all over the weekend and that Monday where the different conferences were announcing their updated schedule plan. So we had seen basically all the Power Five conferences had decided to limit the amount of non-conference games they would play. They were basically just going to go conference only. And all these conferences were releasing their schedules of, hey, here's how the Big Ten is going to play. And the SEC added two teams from the other division. And some teams got easier pass. Some teams got harder pass. And then all of a sudden, news started trickling out like, hey, you know, the Big Ten may not play this year. And no one wants to go first. And they're all kind of poking around at this subject of it's the elephant in the room of, everyone's talking about it, but not talking about it because no one wanted to be the first conference to say, hey, we're, we're not playing this fall. 
and it just slowly, slowly, slowly started trickling out, and more and more, more and more momentum came out, and it basically, you know, it felt like imminent any second that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were going to pull the plug and cancel and suspend fall sports. At the same time, we saw superstar college players uh, on Twitter blast out the hashtag we want to play trevor lawrence justin fields Chuba hubbard all these guys across the country and even talking about hey we want to form a, a players union get some representation we will, our voices want to be heard in this and that's a topic for another podcast but mainly the players said that they wanted to play from all around the country and the coaches want to play and but it, it felt like a last ditch thing to, as it felt like we were talking all about it felt like the decision was done and the player said no 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 like this is just the last ditch to try to hey to convince the presidents or the athletic directors hey you know the players really want to do it you know l- let's try but that did not happen on this past Tuesday uh, the 11th the Big Ten announced that they had canceled fall sports uh, that they were not competing in football literally an hour later 45 minutes later the Pac-12 announced the same thing, and not only did the Pac-12 cancel fall sports, they canceled sports in the fall semester. So no winter sports either in the no winter sports games in the winter in, in the fall semester. That means basketball, swimming, wrestling, track and field. No Pac-12 events in the fall of 2020. All that's going to start January 1st. And it was really interesting because the Pac-12 said, "Hey." way too much uncertainty in what the virus situation will be like in the coming months. We don't know what it'll look like in October or November. So it's, it, there's too much uncertainty to make a decision about, to make a clear decision about that going forward. There's also too much uncertainty about the safety of travel, especially, you know, football teams fly private, but the cross country team doesn't the, uh, the tennis team doesn't, they a lot of times fly commercial. And so just the safety of flying commercial right now, is a huge question mark and also parts especially of the pac-12 are in coronavirus hotspots arizona is the biggest one so they have arizona and arizona state in their conference having the oregon state athletic teams fly down to arizona for a game you know that's a big risk and the pac-12 said hey that's that's too big of a risk for us then there's also fundamentally not enough testing for all the athletes in terms of the quantities of tests that they'll have to do in terms of like the frequency of it, the cost of it all that would require the school because it's a huge, huge cost. And there's also the turnaround time right now is really concerning is that the turnaround time is several days in a lot of cases or even a week in, in sometimes. And that's just not good enough for the schools that they felt confident to play football where someone could take a test on a Monday to get ready for a Saturday game and they could get the results back that Wednesday or take a test more, you know, more importantly on that Thursday, get a test result back Saturday morning so they could be cleared to play that afternoon. Uh, a lot of times you take that test on Thursday, you get it back the next Thursday, you could have be asymptomatic and potentially spread the virus to the whole team. So that was a risk that the Pac-12 was unwilling to take. And, you know, it's really, really unfortunate for all the athletes, not just the football athletes who we all think about, but the NCAA also this past week has canceled all of their sponsored fall championships in Division One as well. So 
while that doesn't mean FBS football, the Power Five, you know, the college football playoff, because that is controlled by the conferences, not the NCAA, it, all the other sports have now had their fall sports championship canceled. Soccer, tennis, golf, cross country, all the fall sports you can think of, field hockey, all those will not have a championship this fall. So there's a chance that football is the only sport that is played in the conferences that are continuing to go ahead because some schools, hey, hey, if there's no championship to play for, the NCAA is saying this, it's not, it's not worth the risk for us either. And they may suspend their fall seasons for a lot of those sports too. It's, you know, it's too early to tell in a lot of those cases as, as we're recording this now, but it's a really, really diff- disappointing for the athletes, disappointing for the schools, the employees, because this is their lives. A lot, you know, coaches, that's, this is their job is to coach. Uh, administrators love what they do. The players obviously love what they do. And obviously, you know, besides just the disappointment that there'll be no rivalry, Ohio State, Michigan, Oregon, Oregon State, you know, USC, UCLA, all the rivalries we love to watch. And it, it just hurts not just for the guys who are future pros who are improving their draft stock or want to cement themselves for the generational wealth that can be created for themselves and their families, but it's also all the other athletes who won't be going pro, who are playing their last seasons or work so hard in the off season and just their whole lives for these moments in college representing their universities and they're not able to do it this year. And it, it really, it's just so disappointing. And obviously, you know, there's this pushback that, you know, people in the media or that, or people were rooting for this to happen, that the cancellation of football and, and sports, that is 100% not true because there's so many jobs on the line with just the sports industry that anyone who covers sports who wanted to root for the cancellation of sports is basically rooting for themselves to have a much, much greater chance of losing their job. And that all that stuff doesn't make any sense. And, you know, being upset about the cancellation of sports is one thing and understanding why the decision was done can be another thing, but both of those things can be true. You can be upset the way that I am. I think a lot of people are that it has come to this, that there won't be Pac-12 or Big Ten football this year, or Big Ten sports in general. And you can also understand why they made the decision and be, you know, and still be upset about it. And I think both of those things can be true. And it'll be interesting to see because the SEC, ACC, and Pac and, and, and Big 12 are still planning on playing football. They're making their own risk assessments from almost the same medical reports of, you know, for the Pac-12, they said, hey, this is not worth the risk for us. The SEC is saying, hey, you know, we're going to keep going. This, we're we're going to take, take the risk. We're going to take the chance. And while there's some rumors that these conferences are going to recruit other schools to join them for one year or have players from canceled seasons go to other conferences, I don't think that will happen. I don't think that's true. You know, Nebraska was very adamant about how upset they were about the decision by the Big Ten. And there was rumors about, hey, they may go try to join the Big 12 or the SEC. That literally got shot down within a day or two. The Big Ten was like, you are not allowed to do that. If you do that, you will immediately be kicked out of the Big Ten. You will lose all the money. And the Big Ten, because of their TV deal, they make the most money. Uh, 
it was like, yeah, you can't do this. And it got shut down extremely quickly within like a day. It was like a day of rumors in the big 10, which was like, uh, you cannot do this. You sign an agreement. It will cost you this much money and you will never be allowed back in. And you will never make this much money again. And then Nebraska was like, yep, you're right. Uh, we're not going to go join the big 12. So, Hey, it may happen. Who knows? They may say, just forfeit it. You know, screw you guys. We don't believe in this. We're going to go play. Uh, I don't think it'll happen. I think, you know, the conferences, the money, it will all talk. But the biggest thing is that everyone's talking about spring football, spring football, spring football, spring football. And I think that there's a way to play that isn't being talked about enough is that when people are talking about spring football, I think people think about it as April, May, June, like a true spring, like the true spring. And I think we need to be talking about winter football and call it winter football and have it because if it's winter football starting in January, that'll be a lot different than starting in April in terms of the calendar and thinking about next year for uh, these guys playing two football seasons in such a short period of time. Obviously, for this whole plan to work, and it's a huge if, but it has to be safe and appropriate to start training camp after Thanksgiving in early December uh, just with the virus situation for all these schools. Because if that's not safe, hey, we're going to punt this whole thing. We'll try again next year. But if it is safe, and no one really knows, but if it is safe, then I think that if you start training camp in early December, you can give off the players for Christmas. But most colleges are sending home their students anyway the week of Thanksgiving and not having them return to campus. That's the best chance we have at creating like a bubble type environment in college. You can send everyone home from college and come back and have them reacclimate and do all the testing again. Then you do training camp and practices in January with no one on campus for winter break. We don't really know who's going to be on campus yet, even for the second semester, because schools haven't announced that. And as a former Division Three athlete, we did this in D3 with no scholarships. Guys came back early after Christmas for winter break and played games. Division One athletes do this. Guys can still do this. Usually they're already there. And you can have the training camp. So that way you basically have the eight weeks of training camp and practices, preseason practices. And I think you can start the season the week before the Super Bowl, January 30th, because it goes conference championships in the NFL. The following week, there's nothing. They kind of have the Pro Bowl there. No one watches it, but everyone's in the mood for football. You could start the college season then. You have the Super Bowl the next week, and you play a total of nine games for each school with one non-conference game. Uh, that year would end March 27th. So right at the end of March, you have the conference championship games the week after. And all the bowl games and playoff games would be in April. And obviously, it's the earlier the better in April to finish the season. But uh, if it goes to really the end of April anyway, you know, two teams will be playing at, at the end of April. Won't be that big a deal. The majority of schools will be done in March. Uh, so the schools who don't make bowl games. So uh, if you finish in April, there'll be no football until September. So we have we crown the national championship. That we crown the national champion in April. No formal football at all for several months. You skip spring ball that year, and you restart practice the way that the Ivy League does in September of 2021. The Ivy League does it. They've had a history of fewer injuries and stuff like that, especially Dartmouth, 
with the way that they conduct their practices with very, very little tackling. You have the whole month of September as practice. First games in early October. Play as much of a normal season as possible. You basically sacrifice a month, but by doing that, by sacrificing that month, the national championship game instead will be at the end of at end of January instead of early January, maybe even be very beginning of February. That's not that big a deal. You could put the title game the Saturday uh, before the Super Bowl or uh, the week after the, the Super Bowl. You're essentially ending the season about two to four weeks later than it normally is anyway. And again, you're only ending it for two teams then, and most schools will be long done, and then you'll get back to the normal offseason. And I know that there's all the concern about head injuries and just injuries in general, but I think that this is a way to take a lot of buying. It's a way to try to maximize as much of the season as possible. And if that means, hey, in 2021, we got to play nine games again or ten games again, so be it. But we need teams and we need these leaders in college sports to be – Super, super creative because that's what we've seen so far throughout the pandemic is the schools or just the people and things that have been able to adapt with really creative solutions uh, and thinking outside the box. Those are the ones who have been able to be super successful and been able to return to some semblance of normalcy of, you know, during the pandemic and trying to keep doing the things that they love to do is that you got to be super creative and I don't know if college football is the most creative field that we got, but if they are creative, I think we really have a good chance to have some type of season for the 2020, for the fall 2020 season and the, and the 2021 season. So that's my little plan for college football. I have no idea if it will work or not, but that's just kind of my thoughts about it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back is my conversation with my younger brother, Michael, about the NBA, the NBA bubble and the NBA playoffs. Joining me now is my brother, Michael, to talk a little bit about the NBA, the NBA bubble, and just kind of just some things that he's seen so far and kind of what he's looking forward to for the playoffs. So, Michael, how's it going? I'm doing great, David. I'm always ecstatic to be on the double-double. Uh, I've only talked about movies and the Philadelphia Eagles, so now it's it's really the big boy hours now. It's the big test about NBA basketball, NBA playoffs. Uh, and I can't be a basketball player who sounds stupid about basketball. So let's hope for the best. Yeah, you're, you know, that's a great way to put it, Mike. This is a this is a test for you, and and we'll see if you uh, pass a test or if there'll have to be a lot of edits in this. But we're hoping for the best. So you've watched a lot of NBA games with me, with Dad, uh, just sometimes by yourself, just watching some NBA games. Watched a lot of highlights on Instagram, Twitter, just. What are some of your big takeaways from just the bubble so far? I think my biggest takeaway right now is there's definitely a lot of chaos, a lot out of the control of the teams and the players. And we're seeing what teams are best able to handle that and which teams are struggling right now. LeBron had that quote where he said something along the lines of, there's stuff off the court, I can't really get into it right now, but that's why we're struggling. Sounded a little bit like an excuse to me. But I think it could be very real. I think there's a very real aspect of guys not knowing how to handle the bubble life. Uh, it being such a different scenario than any other end-of-season playoff 
ever, right? This is a once in a generation thing. So I think the biggest takeaway is how much chaos there is almost across the board and how it's affecting even the top and best teams. Yeah, you, you, it's definitely, you're right on something there because everyone's talking about, hey, this is obviously an extreme circumstance. No one has ever done this before. We don't really know what to expect. But as I talked about with Coach Sass last week, the quality of play has been really high. Uh, the games have been really, really good. We've watched a bunch of really games. You know, we watched Dallas-Portland, which was an awesome game last night. Portland, Brooklyn was a great game, not to mention all the, all the games with the true title contenders, like a Bucks raptors game or the Miami-Raptors game. Just like Miami-Milwaukee was a great game. Just games like that where it's just been a really, really high level of competition. Guys are playing super, super hard, and it's going to be really interesting to, to see kind of how that translate to the playoffs because as you know you're saying not every team is 100 there yet the lakers clearly are not there yet their offensive production has been way down while in the bubble partially because they're trying out a bunch of different lineups and a bunch of different uh guys to the rotation uh to be a creator off the bench whether it's Dion waiters or jr smith to to replace the avery bradley and to replace rajon rondo's minutes who's broke his uh thumb and and, and he's been out but kind of just you know, there have been 22 teams in the bubble. What was your favorite team to watch? Because unlike a normal regular season, typical regular season, you got to see all the games were essentially on national TV and were on channels that you could watch every single game of. And we got a chance to see a lot of teams we may not get a chance to see all the time. So just, so just what was a couple of teams that, that you really liked watching during this restart period? So I'll start with the Phoenix Suns, and going back to what you said a second ago, I'm, I've been really impressed with how high level the games have all been. Uh, even So even though the teams at the top may not be as impressive as we thought they would be early on, some of the teams at the bottom are giving really good games. You know, I truly thought the Phoenix Suns were being invited to be a little bit of a doormat of the tournament. I mean, frankly, I thought the whole playoff format was the Trojan horse to get Zion Williamson into the playoffs. Um so for the Suns to make the most out of that, go 8-0 and and knock them off. Now, I know they didn't get the, one of the play-in games because Dame Dollar decided to go Super Saiyan Herculean on the rest of the league. Um, but I really enjoyed watching them. Like I was just talking about, I really have enjoyed watching the Trailblazers and uh, Damian Lillard doing everything he can, he can possibly do in human ability to drag the Trailblazers into the playoffs. Even if, even if they're not going to w- go all the way, I think it would be a fun series to watch him battle with LeBron and Anthony Davis. And then my favorite team to watch, and I've been talking about them constantly, is the Denver Nuggets. For, for starters, Nikola Jokic is maybe my favorite player in the entire league. Probably is. The only other guy who would compete with him is Joel Embiid. And we got to see Bull Bull in action, a guy who was highly touted in high school, highly touted at Oregon, Hurt his leg, um, really fell in the draft. Where people were wondering what that upside was going to be, what he was going to look like as an NBA player. So far, pleasantly surprised. Looks more NBA ready than I think even a lot of his hopeful uh, fans would have thought. And then the biggest, the biggest burst has been Michael Porter Jr. I think Michael Porter Jr. has looked like a bona fide NBA star, albeit in a crazy small sample size. But he's looked incredible so far. Him and Jokic have a really great synergy. They've been get the Nuggets have been getting everybody back slowly but surely. So I've just loved watching the the Nuggets play. They play a really fun, well balanced game, and with Porter in the lineup, I think they could be really scary as the season goes on. Yeah. So Porter was a guy who in high school was the number one ranked recruit. Decides to go to Missouri. 
And when while in Missouri, he had a couple of injuries, including a pretty serious back injury that required surgery. And so that's so so he fell in the draft as a 19 year old with the back previous back surgery. Teams were you know a little wary of taking him in the top five or top ten. He falls to Denver at 14, spends his rookie year basically as a quote unquote redshirt year, spending the whole year getting healthy, working out. And then this year was really his first year playing a lot of games, and he's got a lot more minutes in the bubble, partially because the Nuggets had a lot of trouble with, unfortunately, a lot of guys on their team got the coronavirus, so they were recovering from that. They didn't know what their stats would be like when they came back. And also, you know, Jamal Murray was banged up, Gary Harris banged up, guys also were banged up. There were minutes to be had, and Michael Porter Jr. shot the ball really, really well. He's 6'10", can shoot the... He can really shoot the three, which, as you said, with Jokic is such a tr- tremendous passer. Having guys like that who can space the floor and knock down shots is huge for them. He still struggles on defense like most 20-year-old guys in the in the NBA, uh, especially for as athletic and big as he is. That makes up for some of his uh, mistakes because he can jump out of the gym and block shots and he's fast enough to recover. But it's the defensive mistakes that drives Coach Mike Malone crazy, which might have been why we didn't see him that much in the regular season, was in those limited minutes. Coach Malone wanted someone who could he could trust defensively. But he's been such an unbelievable shot maker during this restart period. You're right. They have a chance, especially they'll be matching up against Utah. If He has a chance to, on a bigger stage in the playoffs, really show – what he's all about and you know live up to the potential and the and the promise the tantalizing potential that so many people fell in love with him going into his freshman season at missouri because he's so big he's so skilled and on the wing so much attention utah's gonna give so much attention to Jokic if he can keep knocking down shots that's a really really big thing for the utah jazz who are down bogdanovich as a good perimeter defender yeah and i would say one more thing that I've been really impressed with with Porter is not so much just that he's individually been very impressive. I think he's really worked within the system of a team. And so you said he's a great shoot. He's been a great shooter, which is true, absolutely true. But I've been even more impressed by his ability to back cut. I know that's not the the most fun skill to talk about in basketball, but he truly is working with Jokic in a very mesmerizing way, where he's setting guys up. And like you said, he's six ten, pushing six eleven really good feet really good hands and can really finish so it's not just he's having good games because the nuggets play a little bit and they're like all right let's go give the ball to porter he'll iso do his thing and then we'll get back on defense it's like no porter's doing really well doing what the nuggets want so like i said i've just been loving watching them play and it's also just been really interesting too about them because they came in to the bubble they were the three seed in the west and everyone said okay they had all these injuries all this banged up Hey, this is a team that could fall off and maybe will fall to four, five, six. No one really knew what to expect from them. It was so packed in there in the West, but they've remained at the three spot. They match up against Utah, in a, which will be a really, really interesting first round matchup uh, because we've seen the Rock. We, we've seen the Rockets knock out the Jazz the last two playoffs. Uh, we'll see if Denver can do it this year. As Denver made the second round last year, fell in a seven game series to Portland. And, you know, they just they win games. They get the job done. Well, coach, Jokic is a superstar. I want to talk about the play in game now for a second, Mike. You mentioned and I agree with you that this whole it feels like this whole thing by the NBA to have 22 teams instead of 16 was 
an attempt to get the Pelicans into the playoffs. For the Zion Williamson LeBron James matchup, the Washington Wizards were the only team from the Eastern Conference who were brought in who were not in the top eight. They were a disaster. They fell even below the Charlotte Hornets, who were in the in, in the standings, and the Hornets were not even invited to the bubble. The the battle for the eight seed in the Western Conference was one of the most interesting storylines going into the bubble. And what played out was the Pelicans were were an abject disappointment. One, it just didn't really look like a lot of them wanted to be there. They didn't play with any of that fight, any of that you know that desire to win and compete for the playoff spot. Uh, so they were done. A huge disappointment. Their defense was really bad. But what we saw was teams that we didn't talk about. You mentioned the Phoenix Suns went eight and zero. They are a huge surprise. The San Antonio Spurs were right there again. It's like you can't get rid of the Spurs. And it came down to the final day. Memphis down Jaron Jackson Jr. holds on for the eight seed. Uh, they fall from eight to nine, but they hold on for that playoff game spot. And Portland, as you mentioned, led by Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, a healthy uh, Nurkic at the center. Great shooting from Gary Trent Jr. and Carmelo Anthony. They get the eighth seed, which is huge because that means that in the way this funky play in quote unquote play in tournament that the NBA set up, Portland now only has to beat the Memphis once, once to make the playoffs and match up with the Lakers. Memphis now has to win twice, which is really interesting. So, kind of, what are you expecting from this playing game? And is there any chance Memphis down Jaron Jackson can steal two against the Blazers? I think there's always a chance. Uh, I'm also a big fan of John Morant, so as long as they have him, I think there's always a chance. And frankly, I think for the Grizzlies, it's a win-win situation because either they get to go toe-to-toe with Damian Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers and get beat up, beat up on, which is always good for your young guys to see what a real good NBA team looks like, and that's what the Trailblazers are very good and have really good players across the board between Lillard, McCollum, Nurkic, Collins, you know, they have, they just have a ton of guys who are pros and have been in the league for a long time. And so I think either way, it's going to be great for John, John Moran to get his rear end kicked by Damian Lillard. Uh, and if they make the playoffs and they're able to win those two games, it's a, it's a little bit of a confidence boost. Like, oh, wow, we can really do this. We can really hang around in a really competitive Western Conference. And then in the same thing, they just get more games to go get tortured by LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Like I said, obviously, I don't think the Grizzlies are going far. I think they'll be—they'd be lucky to get into the playoffs and then be lucky to even win a game against the Lakers. Because I do think LeBron, no matter how shaky the Lakers have looked, LeBron always finds a way to turn it up when the when the lights are brightest to me. So I think for the Grizzlies, it's all upside of getting your young guys just valuable, valuable experience to reload and go next year and say like, hey, media is in love with the Pelicans. We don't care about no stinking Pelicans. We're the ones who made the playoffs. Uh, and then if you're the Trailblazers, you're just giving Dame Dollar more chance to showcase on national television and try to impress more people, maybe convince another star to come sign with you. Um, so I think either way, it's going to be a good outcome for the teams involved, but I do think it's going to be the Trailblazers who get the nod. Yeah, it feels like almost Memphis has no pressure on them because mm-hmm. this year, even just being in the eighth seed when the shutdown happened – Back in March, they were ahead of schedule. They were one of the darlings of the whole NBA season. Even though they were, you know, a little under 500, they played. They were playing really well and above expectations for such a young team. They got nothing to lose, as you said. It's all upside for them. It's a chance just to play again. 
Uh, hopefully try to remain healthy because the Jaron Jackson injury is a huge bummer for them going forward. But what's really interesting to me is that we watch this and, you know, it's, it's hard to bet against Damian Lillard in any game or, or in any series, but Portland's defense is really, really weak. And maybe, you know, it feels like it's going to be fun. Like, hey, the, you know, the Lakers don't really have guards who can guard Lillard and McCollum and, uh, they can definitely score a lot and maybe steal one or two games if Lillard goes off for 40 or 50. But their defense, you know, Karis LeVert is a very good, solid NBA player, but he had 35 on him. You know, like, what is LeBron James, what is Anthony Davis going to do against just a really, really weak Portland defense? I don't think that there'll be any, you know, that may be what gets the Lakers out of this offensive funk is playing against a team who's not very good at defense. But I'm excited for this playing game. It's not like a true playing game. The Major League Baseball has the best playing game aspect because it's a true one game elimination wild card game. It's based. It's like it's like the NCAA tournament or the college football playoff. It's one game, winner go home. This is weird. Like it's one game for Portland, but two games for Memphis. It's not really like a best of three. It's like a weird thing. It doesn't really make any sense when you think about it. But heading into the playoffs, we know that it's either going to be the Lakers against Portland or Memphis. The Clippers are matching up against the Dallas Mavericks in the West. As we talked about, Nuggets against Jazz. And then the Thunder and the Rockets are matching up in the 4-5 matchup. Seeding is important but doesn't matter as much this year as obviously as we've talked about extensively on this podcast. And really just if you're following anything about the NBA, you know we're in a bubble. No home court advantage. What are some series in the Western Conference? You know, we talked a little about Den- about Denver, Utah. Are any of these other series, you know, something that you're excited about in the Western Conference in, in the first round? Yeah, so I would say I'm really interested in the Clippers-Mavericks series, for one, because as we've talked about, the Mavericks offense is scorchingly, you know, sensationally hot. Uh, they just pour it in. They're, one of, they're just so much fun to watch. And we've talked about... When the guy leading, leading the show is Luka Doncic, who generally looks like a next-generational player, you know, in the mold of a LeBron James, uh, Kevin Durant, uh, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, like, that's the level of player you're talking about. So you're like, okay, you have a, the ultra-superstar running the show. Then you have the unicorn, right? Seven foot three, maybe seven, even seven foot four, Kristaps Porzingis, who has a perfect, silky-smooth jump shot and a really nice post-game, can really use the backboard. I think you have a bunch of guys who can all catch and shoot and create a little bit. There, there's not a ton of star power on that team outside of that, but you have Tim Hardaway Jr. who can literally pour in 30 for you because of what he can do do creating and shooting-wise. You have a guy like Bobby, Boban Marjanovic, who's seven foot five and an absolute freak to guard, and he creates so many different matchup uh, nightmares because there really isn't a guy like him except maybe Taco Fall, and they're obviously not going to be competing against each other. So I'm really interested in that. But then also the Clippers still have the Terminator and PG-13. Um, so there's plenty to still like for the Clippers. But I think that's going to be just a really fun, high-scoring series. And then I'm really interested in the whole Rockets-Thunder because obviously it's just – it's destiny that's going to be – that you're always going to look at those two in conjunction with each other because of the Harden trade all those years ago and now the Westbrook, Westbrook trade before this season – and even though Westbrook's going to be hurt for the first couple of games, I'm pretty sure. I think, yeah, he hurt his quad muscle, so he's 
he has a strain in his quad, so it's 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 unsure whether he'll be ready for the first couple of games. So that's something to watch going forward. But before we dive into the Houston OKC series, I want to mention something about the Dallas series, which is really interesting. Is that they present a lot of matchup nightmares because with the way that they play, Doncic is a true MVP candidate at 20, 21 years old. He's averaging you know twenty eight points a game, ten assists, eight seven or eight rebounds, just unbelievable. But what Porzingis at full health can do, stretching the court, he's a legitimate three-point shooting threat from 26, 27, 28 feet out. What that does is that it opens up so much space, and when he picks and pops, it's basically an automatic switch or a scramble on a, uh, on a fling back to him from Doncic. They have so much, so many other shooters, as you mentioned, Tim Hardaway Jr., Dorian Finney-Smith is shooting the ball really well down at the bubble. They bring Trey Burke off the bench, who can really shoot Seth Curry, Maxi Kleba. They have so many guys who can make shots that they have the best offense in the NBA, the most efficient offense in the NBA, one of the best offenses in the history of the league. It's unbelievable to watch. Again, the problem is super young team. They can't play any defense. They are really, really weak defensively. Their goal is to try to outscore you. I think their game against Houston that went into overtime is like in like in the one fifties or the one forties. Unbelievable. But you have to think that they could steal one game against the Clippers if they make thirty threes, which is very possible for that group. But as you mentioned, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, the Mavericks don't really have anyone on the wings who can really slow them down. Uh, you know, I, I love Tim Hardaway Jr., former Nick, Dorian Finney-Smith, been playing great. Asking any of those guys, you know, no one can really guard Kawhi Leonard, but asking one of those guys to do it and contribute so much on the offensive end is a really, really tough ask. Uh, I, and I think it'll be really interesting to see what the Clippers do defensively against the Mavs and, and kind of how they match up against Chris Stapps in particular, because I have to think Luka's going to get either the Paul George or the Kawhi treatment, or if Pat Beverly is healthy, it's going to be a group of those three a rotation of those three but that's gonna be a really interesting series two of the best coach in the nba and rick carlisle and doc rivers i got the clippers in five in that one uh but the the way that the mavericks shoot is just unbelievable and it kind of goes into the next series which is okay see houston because of the way houston can shoot too because they unlike the mavericks they the mavs play a center in porzingis he's seven three he's their center the Rockets play a six foot seven center in Robert Covington, or really you could say a six foot five center in PJ Tucker. And they spread out the court. They have Russell Westbrook, who's their worst shooter, but most teams put their center on him. They spread out the whole court. They let Westbrook get downhill. They let everyone else try to get downhill. It's drive for layups or get fouled, drive and kick out for threes, or catch and shoot threes. That's basically what they do on every possession and it's unstoppable because they basically use math against you which is they'll take 55 or 63s in a game and if they make 20 that's 60 points and if you and it's just the math just they just keep going hey three's more than two three's more than two three's more than two they really struggle rebounding, but if they, but their whole plan is just, hey, we just got to keep it close going into the fourth quarter and within distance, of, and just let James Harden and Russell Westbrook go, and they can beat anybody. And I, as much as I love the Thunder, I think the Rockets are going to win that series. Yeah, no, that's what I was trying to build towards. I think stylistically speaking, this is the most interesting first round matchup because on the one hand, you have the exactly what you're saying about the Rockets. You have ultra modern in every sense of the word. 
no true center, uh, nobody above 6-7 in the starting lineup. It's all defenses that can switch, guys who can shoot threes and attack the rim. Ultra, ultra modern in every sense of, the, of basketball thinking. Then in the Thunder, I actually think they're way more old school than a lot of people give them credit, than a lot of people are talking about, because they're shooting a ton of mid-range jump shots between CP3, Shai Gojas-Alexander, and Danilo Gallinari. Their center is Steven Adams, who's just a brick wall, setting screens around the basket, offensive rebounding. So I think this really is a, a clash of the titans of, hey, really traditional basketball thinking in a lot of ways, with mid-range shooting, traditional center, and against the Rockets, three-point shooting, free throws, small ball switching. And I think it's going to be really fun to watch. So flipping over to the Eastern Conference, you have a team that that we were talking about doing this podcast together that, that, that you specifically asked that you could talk about. You know, and I just want to give you the floor now for, you know, however long this takes for you just to get out all your feelings towards this one team that you are dying to talk about. I appreciate that. So I really find it frustrating to watch the Philadelphia 76ers for a litany of reasons. Um, For starters, going back to last season when they started trading away guys like Landry Shamit, Dario Saric, and Robert Covington and bringing in pieces like Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler. I love Jimmy Butler. He's a Buzz Williams guy. I love Jimmy Butler, but I think it was the exact wrong move for that team. And... They did it with Tobias Harris. I thought that was an even more incorrect move for that roster because here's the problem with the Sixers right now. They have their stars. The process worked. They have Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. That was everything Sam Hinkie was talking about. He's got the star player, and even more importantly, Simmons. Got, they got the second star player and Simmons to pair with him. But by nature of how Simmons is as a player who's so reluctant to shoot threes, either through lack of willpower or lack of skill – He's really in the half court a lot like a center. In, the, in transition, he's your point guard. In the half court, he's offensively very limited. Joel Embiid is the best post player in the game, but he's not a, he's not a great three-point shooter. He's passable. He's respectable, but nothing more than that. So to, to build around those guys, to me, you need what the Mavericks, the Mavericks did. You need guys who can really shoot the ball, who can do a little creation, and you need them to be able to, and you need them to be able to play defense because Embiid and Simmons are also both great defenders. So you just need guys who can sort of flow with them. But instead of that, they get rid of all a bunch of their young shooters, their young pro, their young prospects, a couple some picks to bring in Jimmy Butler, who's very hard to play with depending on the team, and Tobias Harris, who doesn't really fit what they're trying to do because he's he's one of those guys who's he's not really like a superstar. But he's really good, so he's not like a role player, grind it out kind of guy. But he's not a superstar who's really like, oh, he, you just you got your version of the Warriors in the East. Like he's not that good. And then to top it all off, in this this summer, they brought in Al Horford, a guy who plays the exact same position as Joel Embiid, who can't shoot. Like he's not he's again a, a serviceable, okay catch and shoot shooter, but nothing more. And then I just get I get really frustrated. When I see like NBA Twitter, like man, why is it so? Why are the Sixers struggling? It's like because this is this is their own design. They've designed this system that's beyond archaic, that doesn't work in the modern NBA. You can't have three guys on the court who have no ability to really threaten a defense with shooting. It's one thing to have one guy in Russell Westbrook and the Rockets. Heck, I think you can even have two sometimes. But to have a rotation where you have Horford and Embiid and Simmons, none who are all around the basket players in the half court. 
you're setting yourself up for failure. So I think they've been painful to watch as much as I love Embiid. And I really hope the Sixers find a way to right the ship. So that was just as entertaining as, as I hoped it would be. And I think you made an important characteristic and an important distinction there when you talk about the characteristics of their shooters, which is they have decent shooters on the roster, Shake Milton, Tobias Harris by percentage. They have good percentage shooters. They just don't have willing shooters, those guys who are going to put them up because they just don't take enough threes. And, you know, I don't really know how I feel about Ben Simmons. Part of me feels like he should take a couple threes a game, but also if he's going to miss those two, uh, that, you know, I think that will hurt the team too. It's like a weird thing where you don't really know. It's a catch 22. It's like you don't know which is best, but I do know that dude is an unbelievable defender and unbelievable in transition, and he's a great passer. And he's been great from the second he's started in the NBA. Embiid is an unstoppable force down low. He's scoring like 1.1 points per possession, which is number one in the NBA. He's shooting like over 50% on post-ups, but he's also getting fouled like 30% of the time. So he's going to the free throw line on 30% of his post-ups. So that offense is incredible, but Embiid draws so much attention with the double teams, and he's a developing passer. He's getting better. He's not great yet. You know, it's hard because you talk about like a Nikola Jokic, who's unbelievable. Embiid's not going to be that, but he's getting better. They need to get kick the ball out to guys who will, who it's right now that they don't really have to worry about guys who will catch and shoot. It's catch in terms of catch and make the shot they shoot. It's more just catch and who is actually going to shoot because it feels like Tobias Harris always wants to drive feels like Josh Richardson wants to drive and create. They just need someone who's going to stand there and just catch and shoot and just let it fly so that the spacing is there for everyone else so that they can create. But because everyone just goes and creates, there's not enough space because that's what the defense is expecting them to do. Exactly. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. And I just can't get over the fact that if their roster right now was Ben Simmons, either Shake Milner or Landry Shamit. Robert Covington, Sarge, and Embiid, they would just be in a much better position. And J.J. Redick, who, who they would have paid if they didn't sign Horford or re-sign Tobias Harris. Thank you for that. I completely forgot that they also let J.J. Redick. Like, I guess it just it, it struck me as so simple. I, I, am not, I am wrong about most things, all right? I am not that smart. But literally going back now almost two years, it feels like, Everything they've done, I'm, I've been like, well, that's the wrong decision. When they trade for Jimmy Butler, I was like, that's the wrong decision. Proved to be the wrong decision. When they trade for Tobias Harris, I was like, that's really not the right decision for them. They signed Al Horford. I was like, this is going to blow up in their face. And all I heard was how like it's going to be the toughest big man tandem in the league. I'm like, yeah, tough to watch. It just, I, it drives me crazy <laughs> how much they've just jettisoned. The management has jettisoned young, willing shooters. Not even just young. Willing shooters, they could have had such a strong rotation because you have Simmons and Embiid as your stars, like I said. Covington, Redick, Shamit, Sarich, all guys guys who can shoot a little bit, play defense. And instead, you have this like hodgepodge of guys you've never even heard of now playing because you went all in on Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris. Like, how good did, did your scouts really think Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris were? I think it's, you know, they, they felt the pressure last year. Uh, no LeBron in the East. It was clearly, you know, Giannis was clearly one year away from what we've seen this year from being a true legit title threat. I think they thought that the East was for the taking. They didn't know what to expect with Kawhi Leonard and how he would fit in with Toronto and how just his looming free agency would play out. And, you know, the, you know everyone loves to talk about it. I personally think Toronto would have won the game 
in overtime, but Kawhi Leonard shot, bounces four times in Game 7. Philly could have won that game in overtime. Does Philly beat Milwaukee? Who knows? But I think that this is the last year of Brett Brown because I think that this team is maxed out with him. It feels Warriors-like, where the Warriors under Mark Jackson went from a laughing stock of the NBA to a really, really good, young, fun team, built up a lot of the defensive principles. They make the second round of the playoffs in 2013-2014, and they made that really, really tough decision of saying, Mark Jackson has been a great coach for us. He's gotten us to this point. He's been incredible, but we need someone else to take us to that next level. Brett Brown should get all the praise for sticking with this team throughout the process of all those losing seasons, those terrible rosters where they were trying out so many guys and picking up guys on that terrible salaries because they got extra second-round picks. So he was coaching guys who were going to be there for 20 games who didn't want to be there, and he was trying. And he was a professional this whole time. And Bede Simmons, they finally get healthy. You know, he did a good job with them. He's gotten them to this point. I think that this needs to be the last year for Brett Brown, and they go hire someone else to try to help them take the next step. Now, that doesn't mean it will work. When you change coaches, everyone thinks when you change coaches, magically everything always gets better. That's not always the case. Sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it goes poorly. And is there a chance Philly is worse if they change Brett Brown to another coach? 100%. But I feel like you have to try because it feels like this group is maxed out and they've maxed out their potential with Coach Brown. It feels like they need to change their coach or completely change the way that they play to unleash the best in Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Uh, knowing Brett Brown, his background is in player development. So you're right. You're right. I think there's a chance that he's taken this team to the next to the highest he possibly can. And I need a guy like Curtis to the Warriors, maybe institute a, a, a system or better at managing star players like Ty Lue's reportedly supposed to be really good at that. Something along those lines, I agree that that could, be, that could be on the table for the Sixers. I don't think they should rush into anything, especially with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and you don't know what all the coaching options are going to look like, what next season's going to look like, what the world's going to look like in six more months. The one thing I'll say, and I'm glad you brought up the Bucks, and it's one reason I'm so hard on the Sixers, because I feel like the Bucks actually laid out such a perfect blueprint if your star player can't shoot. Because I love Giannis, right? Giannis is a great player. But Giannis isn't a good shooter. Giannis cannot put pressure on a defense by shooting. So what do they do with Giannis? They surrounded him with guys who can shoot. First of all, they, Chris Milton's a very strong player, so he's a good Robin to his Batman. But you have guys like Lopez, Corver, DiVincenzo, like guys who can really spread out and know their role while playing with a star player. So to me, Ben Simmons is a worse version of Giannis Antetokounmpo, but he's still a top 15 player. So if that's the, if that's the case... You need to surround him with those role players like the Bucks tried to do with Giannis. And I think they even have a benefit where Embiid's a much better... I think Embiid's actually a better player than Simmons, but I just was drawing that comparison. Embiid's better than Middleton. So you, I think in the aggregate, they're a better two, tandem than Middleton or Antetokounmpo, but they don't have nearly the same role players or scheme or you know like system that they run. So you you need that for the balance. And like that's why like the Bucks, I just don't think... Like I said, from their top two guys together are better than the Sixers. They're better all the way down the rest of the rest of the bench, though. So, yeah, the 
it'll definitely be interesting to see how the Eastern Conference playoffs go because so Philly at the sixth spot matches up against Boston, which is a tough match for them, especially because Ben Simmons is hurt. He will not be with the team for the, at least the first round after he had a knee procedure to fix his uh, to repair his dislocation of his, of his left knee. It will be really interesting to see how they do because Embiid's an unstoppable force, but Boston has Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kemba Walker, Gordon Hayward, Marcus Smart. You know, guys, really, really good guys on the wing. It'll be, it'll just be really to see if Philly can compete with them because Philly has you know pretty solid perimeter defenders. Simmons is their best, but it'll be interesting to see if a first round exit wakes up the ownership to say, hey, we really got to make a change. That'll be an interesting series. I think Boston's going to win that one. Another interesting series is Miami against Indiana. We get to see more of the Jimmy Butler, TJ Warren feud. That'll be really interesting to see. Indiana is just a hard-nosed, scrappy team. It feels like you know every team from Indiana gets this scrappy designation, but they win with guys who just play really hard and just are really good, and they win in almost... You know, you don't pay attention to them a lot, and then it's like, wait a second, they're still in this game in the fourth quarter. Wow, they won 45 games this year. It's like Victor Oladipo, TJ Warren, Miles Turner, Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, They've just had a great, great year. I think they'll challenge Miami. I think that'll be a really fun series. I'm betting on Miami to win with Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler and Duncan Robinson and all those guys, Coach Spo. But Indiana's been a really, really good team. The one series that's just an absolute snooze is the Bucks magic. I, you know, I'll, I'll watch a little bit of it just because I'm a fan of basketball. But, you know, the computer will be up in that one. I'll, I'll, I'll be checking emails. I'll be working on some other stuff while those games are on because the Bucks are going to win that one in a clear sweep. And potential snooze fest, even though Brooklyn's played really hard, is Raptors-Nets. But is there any series in the East where it's just a complete snooze for you and you're not planning on watching a single game? Yeah, you said it with the Bucks Magic series. I'm I'm not going to watch a single game of that. <laughs> it's going to be a total sweep by the Bucks. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was two years ago, but it might have even been last season when the Bucks played the Pistons and Blake Griffin was reportedly out with an injury for the first round, and Twitter rightly corrected it to say so he's out for the rest of the season <laughs> because the Pistons without Blake Griffin had no shot to win a game against the Bucks, let alone four out of seven. And that's exactly how I feel now. And it's not to disrespect the guys, because I, I like some of the guys that have Vucevic, and I like that Markel's finally seems like he's putting his act together a little bit more, and I, I really do hope he bounces back from that truly weird uh, saga in Philadelphia. But I think there's no chance they win a game, let alone 4-7. Won't watch that. On the flip side, I'm crazy excited for more T.J. Warren, Jimmy Butler beef. I'm not sure if I've ever been more interested in a feud between players of less lesser regard than T.J. Warren and Jimmy Butler, <laughs> and, but I'm going to be there for it. I love the jawing, I love the social media clapbacks, and I just I want all of it. And I'm going to watch I'm going to watch every single minute of both of those games, of all all of those games. Speaking of T.J. Warren, who's your MVP of the bubble? Devin Booker, easy. Yeah, I I think it's Booker too. Just getting the Suns to eight and zero. He played great. Officially on the map of this guy is a future, not just all-star, but he has a chance to be a, a true superstar. Uh, T.J. Warren's played great. He struggled against Jimmy Butler and just has struggled against some other great defenders. I think it's Devin Booker, so I hope he wins that award. Or, you know, give it to my guy, KP. He's been playing great 
or Michael Porter Jr. There's a lot of good cases, but I think uh, we're, we're we're in agreement on Devin Booker. As as we wrap up here, Mike, who do you got winning the finals? Because I got Milwaukee. Still, yeah, I know you've been big on Milwaukee. Since this is a public statement, I'll probably still go with the Lakers because I've been I've been uh, riding with the Lakers all season, and I still am a big I'm a big believer that size still matters a lot in the NBA. And you have so you have LeBron James, you have Anthony Davis, then you have the tandem of McGee and Howard, as goofy as they are off the court and uh, skeptical of the coronavirus, they are on the court. They still are they still quite pack a one two punch. But being more candid, I think the Nuggets have a better chance than anybody right now is giving them credit. I think if Michael Porter Jr. can match eighty percent of what he's done so far, and that that is a big ask because he's he's playing like he's playing right now over the past you know four four or five games like a true NBA superstar, like a top ten player. So eighty percent of that's still a lot to ask for. I think he's the missing piece that the Nuggets have been looking for for a long time: a, a score first, big wing who's not afraid to shoot, not afraid to dunk it on someone's head, but he also doesn't have the pressure of having to be the best player because Jokic always turns it up in the playoffs. Like last year's playoffs, he was awesome. So you have Jokic, Murray, and Porter. I think there's actually a very good chance that they they make more noise than anyone right now is giving them credit for. Really interesting. Really interesting. So you got the Lakers, but you're rooting for Denver. I have Milwaukee, and I'm rooting for Milwaukee. But I think Toronto is a, is a sleeper in the East, so we'll definitely see what happens, but... Mike, really appreciate all the time uh, getting you out of the pool to, to sit down and do this with, with me uh, as we're here on uh, vacation. So uh, just really appreciate the time, Mike, and uh, I'll catch you uh, at dinner tonight. Appreciate it, David. Go Brewers. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We will be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.